His very first sermon is taken from Isaiah 61. That event is recorded in Luke chapter 4 as he's, he's preaching his inaugural sermon in Nazareth. And we'll, we'll end up referring to that sermon a number of times today. But here's what he preached. He said, verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Such as beautiful imagery, isn't it? He says, it goes on, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of the Lord's glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. You can get the image of Jerusalem devastated after Babylonian invasion. They will restore the places long devastated and will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed. And then finally, verse 10, 11. I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, so so he's clothed me in the garments of salvation and the robes of his righteousness. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Well, let's start out by going back to the Christmas story. Um, After Mary is found to be pregnant, Joseph decides that he's going to divorce her Remember, he's going to divorce her quietly. He wants to minimize the public shame, the ridicule, and the scorn that she would incur. We don't know exactly how he, like, how do you do that? How do you divorce somebody quietly in a small town? But when we hear that that was his intent, 
you say, that is a, that's a good man. That's a noble man. That's a man that is not you know, retaliating out of his own pain and anger. That's, that's the kind of man you'd want to be the father of, the earthly father of Jesus Christ. But while Joseph is considering this, an angel of the Lord warns him not to divorce Mary because the child that is conceived in her is, is conceived by the Holy Spirit. We talked about it in the Heidelberg Catechism so far. You know, technically speaking, we're not celebrating the virgin birth. We're celebrating the virgin conception. Because <laughs> everything about the birth, you know, the, the resulting pregnancy and uh, the actual delivery, I mean, all of that was normal. There was nothing uniquely miraculous about that. Um, we celebrate the virgin conception, but virgin birth sounds a little better, so <laughs> that's how we speak of it. The, the key being, though, that he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. The power that initiates Jesus' life is by the Holy Spirit. Very important for us that there is a virgin birth. You say, why? Because, well, several reasons. Um, one of them is just the, the parallel between Adam and Jesus. So Adam, remember, he was a special creation of God, created by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. Well, so is Jesus. Adam was a sinless representative of all of humanity. Yeah, so, so too is Jesus. So the, the Holy Spirit is, is doing something here. I mean, whenever, when he decides at some point to create a fetus, miraculously, and I'm, I mean, scientifically, we don't have any idea what, I mean, how do you work the X and Y chromosomes? And uh, I mean, we don't know that, but, but what he's doing is he is, he's creating a second Adam, a, a new man. He's, he's like remaking what humanity is supposed to be. And his son. Well, what does that have to do with Isaiah 61? You say, well, uh, notice the very first verse of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. That is, the Holy Spirit is upon Jesus and anoints him to preach his very first sermon. And what is the first sermon? The guy, I mean, man, that had to have been good, I bet. (laughs) What does he preach on? It, it's this. He is a, he is he has pro, uh, anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Uh, and so the poor, the um, the economically poor, absolutely. But but also the spiritually poor. I mean, remember when he's preaching, it's not on the the campaign circuit. He wasn't like stumping new um, economic legislation on how to. No, no, he's. He was preaching to the spiritually poor, too. Um, to bind up the brokenhearted, the, the poor in spirit, the emotionally poor. It goes on. To proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's where I want to camp for just a minute. What is the year of the Lord's favor? Well, it's something that's referred to in the book of Leviticus. We all know Leviticus is very tedious reading, but, it, but this is probably the best part. One of the best parts of Leviticus is it's described there as the year of jubilee, the year of jubilee. 
we know something about, well, plenty about the Israelite calendar. One day in seven, you were supposed to rest, right? There was a Sabbath every, you know, one day a week. And in the Sabbath, you basically were saying, God, I trust you with my life. I trust that you're going to accomplish what's necessary to sustain me in six days when the rest of the world is using seven. So one day in seven is a Sabbath. One year in seven is a Sabbath year. Well, what happened on the Sabbath year? On the Sabbath year, they weren't supposed to plant any crops. The Sabbath year was the one year that the land laid fallow. The land, you could say, got to take a rest. And all of your servants got to take a rest. And you got to take a rest. It was, again, a statement of saying, God, I trust that Basically, you're going to provide all that is necessary in six years, and we're going to live off the proceeds of six years when the rest of the world takes seven. Sabbath day, okay? Sabbath year. Well, well then there it just turned out to be a Sabbath, Sabbath year. After you do seven Sabbath years, seven times seven, 49, the 50th year, they would add an additional entire year, which they called the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, several things happened. Number one, all existing personal debts were forgiven. Every, you know, everything is written off the books. Number two, all indentured servants are released from their servitude. You know, all Israelites are set free. And then number three, all ancestral lands was restored to the original families. All of it went went back. So the year of Jubilee was instituted, it happened to be instituted on on Yom Kippur. So the Day of Atonement. The priest would stand up and he would, he'd blow on the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet, and at the sounding of the trumpet on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on the 50th year, the... The year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, has has begun. So that's Jesus' first sermon. That's a pretty good one. (laughs) He He chose a good passage when he stands up at the end of it and says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing right now. I I am the Jubilee. Like everything that the Old Testament 50th year signified, I, I am that. You know, I can imagine the two very different responses originally to the year of Jubilee. It really, was it good news? It depended on whether or not you were wealthy. Let's assume that you're an Israelite man or woman, and uh, for 50 years, you've you've been, you know, great with your finances. (laughs) You've made lots of sound investments and you haven't done anything terribly irresponsibly. You've worked hard. You've worked your fingers to the bone. At the sounding of the trumpet on, on Yom Kippur, does your heart leap with joy? Yeah, probably not. Because it means that a lot of your wealth gets redistributed, you know, in a second. It means that a lot of your household employees, we'll call them that, <laughs> you lose them in a second. Whose heart sings for joy on, on that day? It's, it's, all of, it's all of the slaves. It's, 
It's the indentured servants who had to sell themselves and their family into slavery to pay off their debts. It's the, the drunk father who has, you know, just wasted his family's inheritance gambling and drinking. It's that drunk father's children who have had to live for years and years with the shame, the, the shame of their own family name. It's, it's the irresponsible, the lazy, the people who have made terrible life decisions, the people who have, you know, set off a grenade in their own lives, the people who've done this to themselves, uh, and the people who have suffered from bad luck, injury, or illness. You know, all, those are the people who, when they hear the sounding of the trumpet, the hair on the back of their neck stands up, and they want to sing glory. Glory, hallelujah. And the question is, what kind of person uh, are you and, and, and am I? Who are we? Because how did the people respond in Nazareth when Jesus ended up preaching this, uh, this message? They say, oh, Jesus, man, you're a good preacher. Yeah, no, they said, let's kill the bum. Who, who are you to be talking to us this way about grace and Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the the carpenter's, the dead carpenter's boy? Because Joseph was was not alive by the time. Who who is this guy? They didn't want to hear the message of grace. You say, why wouldn't somebody want want to hear and receive the message of grace? Well, we'll get back to that in a second. All right, you might, have, you might recognize this name. His name was Noble Doss, D-O-S-S. He was a wide receiver for the University of Texas Longhorns. They entered uh, the last week of the season in 1941, undefeated, playing their conference rival, Baylor, for a shot at the Rose Bowl, a berth in the Rose Bowl, and a shot at the national championship. It was the third quarter when the Longhorns were leading 7-0. to And you say, well, 7-0. to Well, this was football back in the 1940s when you could win a football game with a score of 7-3 to or 7-6. to I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of offense. 7-0 to in the third quarter when the quarterback, you know, uh, drops back and he, he throws to Doss, who is wide open down the field. Quote, he said, the only thing that I had between me and the end zone was 20 yards of green grass. He said, there was nobody within a country mile of me. And then the sure-handed receiver dropped it. You know, of course, when you're wide open, you get the butterfingers. But he effectively dropped the pass that would have probably sealed for them a berth uh, to the Rose Bowl. I mean, because 14 to 0 in football in the 1940s, that's a game that's been pretty much put out of reach. Well, you might uh, guess what happened next. Baylor comes on, goes on to tie the game, and it finishes 7-7. Seven to seven. And again, this is back in a time when football games didn't have a, overtime. You could finish in a tie. And uh, uh, Doss, he's just so disconsolate. He says, quote, I cost us a national championship, and I think about that play every day afterward. Not that he lacks other memories, Happily married for more than six decades. Uh, I, uh, he served in the Navy during World War II. He won NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. He was inducted into the Texas High School 
Hall of Fame and into the University of Texas Longhorn Hall of Fame. Um, A guy who went on to have a, a fairly decent NFL career, but lo and behold, when he walks up to a a Texas coach 50 years later, what do you think is the first thing that he talks about? And it's the drop pass. 50 years later, and he was literally weeping over his failure. I mean, the beauty of the Day of Atonement was every single family and every single person they got a once-in-a-lifetime shot to have all of the past reset. As I said, everything that was against you on the books, no matter what level of incompetence you contributed to it, like all of that, Jesus says, gets erased by me. What an, what an awesome message of grace. Like, And so, I mean, yeah, there was the economic component of it. I mean, God was saying in the year of Jubilee, it was his way of making sure that nobody stayed permanently impoverished. Like, he didn't want any any family in the nation of Israel to be permanently subject to poverty. You always got a chance. Well, actually, they didn't. Because when when you look through the history, you know what you discover is they never enacted the year of Jubilee. The people in power, they never actually did it. Um, but in, in principle, you know, everybody got a clean slate. Um, the, the, well, I think you, you, you get the point. And how do the people respond when Jesus preaches this? Oh, one of the best communicators, one of the best sermons I've ever heard. <laughs> what an amazing preacher. No, they say, let's kill the bum. I don't know, there's something strangely resistant inside of us uh, about the message of grace. Let's go back, okay, I'm almost, there's really, there's so much in Isaiah 61, I can't do justice to like all of these metaphors, but there's one that I wanted to focus the last of my attention on, and it is found in verse 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, the Holy Spirit, is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news and, verse 3, to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on grieving people the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, and then this one, and a crown of beauty instead of what? What does it say? Instead of ashes. Because in their day, when like somebody who you love dies, or something really terrible goes wrong in your life, people back then, they didn't dress up in black. What did they do? They covered themselves in black. They, they, they poured a bowl of ashes over their heads. And it's not like we think of um, with uh, Lent, Ash Wednesday, we get the cute little cross, the ashen cross you know, carved in the, our foreheads. No, no, no. I mean, you, you poured a bowl of ashes on your head. Imagine how ugly you must have looked in the mirror. Just completely. And it was a visual way of saying, my life has gone to ashes. 
Like, this is what my, my life feels like. It's gone to ashes. And we could even explore that metaphor uh, even further, where, like, how do you get ashes? I mean, ashes happens when you take something that is coherent, like this piece of paper, and you put it into the flame. And, I mean, we know... We know that, uh, what, the chemical bonds of whatever paper is, that which coheres begins to fall apart, begins to crumble. The heat burns out the integrity, the coherence, um, you know, in the subject. And you say that, well, that's exactly what my life feels like. (laughs) Um, The wages of sin is ashes. And so what does the Messiah say on that day? He says, I see you. I know you. I know who who you are. Here's a crown of beauty for your head. Ah. You know, if you're not a Christian, um, I do think Christmas is a great time to cross over from from non-faith, unbelief, to, to belief. If we look at the people in the Nazareth synagogue when Jesus first preaches, and, and they get so mad at his message of grace, and I mean, they, they say, we want to kill the guy. We think, oh, how irrational of them to act that. Why would you respond, why would you respond so irrationally to such a great message? But I, I think kind of the modern response to Christmas is probably equally irrational. What I mean by that is is this. If Christmas is real and true, if it's not just, you know, a product of American marketing, like if there is historical basis for Christmas, I mean, then what could be more irrational than not paying the least bit of attention to to what it really means? I mean, mean, we're so... Like we, it's not that we're even, brought, Jim talked about us being actively versus passively waiting. And I think most people in America, they're not actively unbelieving. They're just passively unbelieving. They're like, hey, what's trending on Twitter right now? <laughs> what? what? They just, they, you don't take any time to think about things beyond When's the, net, when's the Star Wars movie going to be released? How many days till that? Like, no, if, if this is real, if this is true, if this isn't just make-believe, then um, the most irrational thing you can do is, is to uh, be disinterested by it. But then I, I know I'm not talking that who I just spoke to is not the majority of us in the room. Probably the majority of us in the room are, are, are those of us who just do not feel very excited about Christmas. <laughs> you know, even though Christmas is a reminder of the year of the Lord's favor and the year of Jubilee, um, a lot of us don't enjoy this time of year very much. <laughs> We're like, can we get this over with? Um, what do you do when um, the shofar sounds, so to speak, and you're just not feeling the overwhelming joy? Well, here's what I would suggest, and it's just one suggestion. We said the Holy Spirit was the power that was behind the conception of Jesus. 
And the Holy Spirit was the power that was behind the ministry of Jesus. Well, that same Holy Spirit is the power that's decided to come and dwell inside of you. Why don't you have a conversation with the Holy Spirit? (laughs) When when was the last time you, you had a frank conversation with the Spirit and told him at length, I'm just not feeling this. I mean, as silly as it might sound, when was the last time you went for a walk with the Holy Spirit and and, and had that conversation with him? Um, I, I mean, I'm not feeling a whole lot of the Christmas cheer right now, but I also realize that uh, I've neglected him. And we, we all can relate to having a relationship with somebody who um, the relationship has gone stale. And we've kind of taken that person for granted. And we, I mean, if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me, he's that close to me, man, he'd be pretty easy to take for granted because he's with me all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's what I would say to you is there's so much to be excited about. And, I mean, let's look at the J.I. Packer quote. We'll close there right underneath in your bulletin, the Lord's Supper. I, I would just talk talk out these kinds of things with the Holy Spirit. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed, needing to be changed. I mean, think about that. The Lord of the universe needed to be changed and and taught to talk like any other child. And there's no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood, or yes, the babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. And why did he do it? It was to bring the year of the Lord's favor to us. Amen.